friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. This morning, we're beginning a new series on Isaiah 6 that we're calling A Vision of God. And you know, one thing I love to do is to take a portion of scripture and to really dive deep into it. And so for the next several weeks, we are spending our time on this vision that God has given Isaiah in the hope and prayer that what the Lord impressed upon Isaiah's heart would be impressed upon our heart. And what that is, is to have a clear vision of who God is as he's revealed himself to us. Uh, Before I read God's word, I do want to take the time to publicly thank those who filled the pulpit uh, in my absence uh, the past uh, four months and thus kept the word of God central to the life of this congregation. At the end of the day, it is God and his word that sustains us and strengthens us. And so I want to thank those from within our own congregation, uh, Eddie Pian, Juni Park, and Dan Ahn for bringing God's word. I also want to thank all the local area pastors. I hope you noticed this, but uh, we very intentionally uh, tried our best to invite local people. And there was a reason for that. And that was to show kingdom partnership in the greater Philadelphia area. It's really important at times for us to stop and remember that the churches and the pastors aren't in competition with one another. Uh, We are co-laborers in Christ's one harvest. And therefore, I am very thankful for them coming, um, making the sacrifice of having to uh, leave their pulpits, have that filled so that they could come spend time with us. And then, of course, for uh, the many pastors who came from out of state and sacrificed um, with longer commutes, uh, I do want to thank Uh, Pastor Dave Lee uh, specifically, because uh, as you know, um, he came four times um, to lead not only the preaching of the word, but also uh, the communion service. And he was coming from uh, North Jersey, which is quite a distance, leaving behind his his wife and three kids. And so it was quite a sacrifice. So I do want to publicly thank him for that. Now I'm back to my regular duties here in the pulpit. Uh, But one thing that doesn't change is, uh, despite whoever is preaching, when we open the Bible, it is God who speaks. It is God who strengthens and God who sustains, not the messenger who delivers it. And so with that, as your act of worship, if you're able, I invite you to stand. Standing is our physical posture that signals to our hearts that we are ready to receive the word of the Lord. Hear it now, Isaiah 6, starting with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And would you join me in prayer once more? Uh, Father in heaven, we ask that this time now in your word would not merely be for instruction, but for formation. Form us into and make us into a people who not only believe right things about you, but live rightly before you. Give to us your spirit that he may empower in us the new life we have in Christ. And make yourself the concern and priority of our hearts now 
as we strive to listen to your word. We ask these things in Christ's mighty name. Amen. We're doing a sermon series in Isaiah 6, really inspired um, from two things. Um, at the end of my sabbatical, or as it was approaching, uh, to be honest, I was growing a bit anxious about coming back and manning the pulpit. Um, I didn't know what to preach, and I began praying and asking and searching uh, the scriptures and asking the Lord to impress something upon my heart. What do the people at Cornerstone need to hear? And as I was doing that, uh, I was flipping through these journals or these notebooks where I kept my reflections during sabbatical, and I came across two things in particular. Uh, the first was uh, that when my sabbatical started, I committed to... Um, really doing deep dives into two books, one in the Old Testament, one in the New. Uh, the one in the New was Luke, and the one in the Old was Isaiah. And I do remember when I got to Isaiah 6, a really familiar passage, one I've even preached on here before, um, that the Holy Spirit seemed to just illuminate new and fresh insights. Uh, an old familiar passage really just began to uh, speak in, in new ways to me. And so uh, I was really excited, and I had made a note that I wanted to, to spend some time in Isaiah 6 with you all. And then the second was... Um, from a reflection I scribbled down about halfway through my sabbatical, um, Eunice and I, over the four months, uh, attended a different church every single week, except for uh, one church that is the first church we went to when we began sabbatical and the last church uh, we worshiped at when we ended sabbatical. It's kind of nice little bookends to it. But uh, in that time, um, you know, the Lord really blessed us. He nourished us. And we went to churches in the area, churches in our own backyard, churches in other states, even churches in other countries. Uh, went to PCA churches and uh, went to uh, some Baptist churches and some non-denominational churches. And the Lord really nourished us. It was so good. But I do share this not in uh, criticism uh, or judgmentalism, but one thing that I noticed, one theme that became clear is that in most of these services, when we entered, uh, we didn't feel like there was a concern uh, to help us sense that we were entering into the presence of God. You know, I know that some of you uh, in the past uh, couple months ago went to a Taylor Swift concert. And, you know, some of these churches I, I went into, I felt like I was kind of at a similar type of concert. That's not a judgment over them, but simply um, this conviction that, that Eunice and I had that, that, um, Something of Isaiah 6 uh, should be happening when you enter in the presence of God. And what I mean by that is uh, this crossing of a boundary between the secular and then the sacred, that you're entering into the presence of the divine. And so uh, with those kinds of two reflections, I thought it would be good for us to take a look at Isaiah 6 and really spend time marinating in the truths here, specifically on the vision that was given to Isaiah. And so today, we're just going to take a broad look at the passage and really focus on uh, two things that we see about God, um, two things that we can put two different ways. The first is to see God's holiness and his grace, or God's holiness and his grace. That's kind of uh, theological terms, holiness and grace. Uh, or if you want to put it more simply, God's bigness and his nearness. Those are the two main things I want us to take a look at. And it's important that we see what Isaiah saw about God. Now, why is this important? Because... If you're going to follow God in this life and you're going to live in unwavering commitment and worship to him, if you actually want vibrancy in your spiritual walk and not just spiritual drought, then you need to see God as he is, as he has revealed himself, both the bigness of God and also the nearness of him. Now, I say that because Isaiah 6 isn't given to us in a vacuum. Isaiah 6 is the whole chapter 
13 verses of which we've only read seven. Now, let me break it down to you. Isaiah 6 verses 1 to 7 is Isaiah's vision from God. God gives him a vision. And then verses 8 to 13 is Isaiah's commission from God. You see, God reveals himself to Isaiah and then he calls him to be his prophet and go speak his message. And then if you actually look at verses 8 to 13, if you actually look at the message, I mean, you realize Isaiah is given a really tough assignment. What God calls him to speak is a message that will be extremely unpopular. So let me just read you the beginning of this message, verses 9 and 10. This is God's call and commission to Isaiah. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, and blind their eyes. And it sounds like the message God is giving Isaiah is really setting him up for failure, that it's setting him up to enter into a ministry of rejection. Who is going to receive this word? Sort of like, imagine you were working as a door-to-door salesman and I was your manager. And I said, this Saturday, I want you to sell bacon door-to-door. And where you're going is a heavily Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. I mean, like, good luck. The doors wouldn't even be open because they'd be breaking Sabbath if they opened the door. Like you would have no luck advancing anywhere. God gives Isaiah a tough assignment. But here's the thing. If God gave Isaiah the assignment first, go and speak this hard message, then Isaiah might have a chance to say, well, God, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not interested in a ministry of failure and suffering and rejection. So God doesn't start with the assignment. What does God start with? The vision. Because God knows if you are going to obey him in this life, you need to see him and know him correctly first. You need a vision of God that will empower your obedience to God. That's what you and I need. If we're going to follow God and live Christian lives in the 21st century, if we're going to persevere the ups and downs of life, if you're going to be a Christian and stay a Christian until you finish your race, you need a vision of God as he's revealed himself, a sense of God's bigness and a sense of God's nearness. So what did Isaiah see? Well, I want us to begin in verse two, where we see Isaiah confronted and surrounded by these great angels called seraphim. And these are majestic and heavenly beings. Now, the word seraphim is merely the Hebrew trans, is the Hebrew word that's translated also as uh, fiery ones or the burning ones. Now, I bring that up because the word seraphim uh, is actually simply a description of what Isaiah saw. And it kind of requires the use of your imagination, these fiery beings raging in flames, radiating with blazing heat. And some of you kind of think about this and you're like, it sounds like the devil in a lot of ways, but, but it's not. This is God's messenger, God's angels. And it's a spectacular scene that's supposed to make you uh, fall on your knees and, and your jaws to drop to the ground. Because in Revelation 19, the apostle John in in the book of Revelation, he gets a vision of a similar angel. And that's exactly what he does. In John 19, it says, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. The point is these angels that Isaiah sees are so grand and great that you're tempted to worship them. 
Now, compared to Isaiah, the angels put him to shame. They make him feel small. I mean, some of you work out at the gym. And one thing I've noticed is people love to look at themselves when they work out at the gym. They stand in front of the mirrors. Have you ever been doing that, working out when somebody comes right next to you? I mean, the gym is wide open, but they come next to you. They're twice your size, lifting twice your weight, and they make you feel small. Well, imagine you're at the gym and you are the bigger one. You are the one who makes other people feel intimidated. And coming up next to you is a seraph. It doesn't matter if the weight he carries is half the weight of yours. It doesn't matter if his arms are undefined. His abs are flabby. He has wings. Six of them. He is a fiery, burning entity. And you're supposed to look at what Isaiah sees and go, wow. And the reason you're supposed to say, wow, is so that then you look at God and you say, no words. You see, because the description of the angels are actually meant to show us the greater glory of God. Because did you notice this? That while in verse one, the Lord is seated, what do we see in verse two? The seraphim are standing. Now, what's with the juxtaposition? It's because the angels are the servants of the Lord and the Lord is the one being served. The angels are always on their feet, poised and ready to do the very bidding of God. And everything about their posture and their description is not actually showing you something about them. It's showing you something about God. And so you're told these angels with six wings, I mean, imagine a six wings, right? And with two, they cover their eyes. Why do they cover their eyes? Because it's telling you that God is so holy and glorious and beautiful that he cannot be perceived and looked at without being undone. Then we're told that the angels with two wings are covering their feet. What is that saying about God? It's saying that he's so holy that much like that scene in Exodus 3, when Moses is standing before God, that the angel is before holy ground. And with two wings, he is flying. Why? Because the angels exist to swiftly serve the very will of God at every utterance that comes from his mouth. In the description of the seraphim, God is the one actually being exalted. And then there's the song, the song of the angels. Of course, these majestic, beautiful creatures are the praise leaders in heaven. And they sing a song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And they say, holy, 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 three times. It's the highest superlative in the Hebrew language. When you're writing a paper and you want to emphasize something, you put it in all caps and you bold it and you italicize it. You underline it. You put four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten exclamation points. That's what the angels are doing. Holiness is the most exalted attribute of God, is preeminent on the lips of the angels. But where does holiness fit on your list of favorite attributes of God? If someone were to say, Oh, I, I know you're a church going person. Do you believe in God? You say, I believe in God. They say, What do you like about God? What makes the top three? I think most of us, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And we miss holiness from the list. But you were to ask the angels, what would they say? Well, first of all, holiness. And then second, can I say holiness? Third, holiness. 
And something about their list compared to our list shows us, hmm, maybe we should reevaluate our list. What are they seeing that I'm missing? Now, some of us, when we think of holiness, only think of the moral component to it, right? Holiness, what does that mean? And I'd venture to guess you think it means sinless. Holy, it means God doesn't sin. He doesn't do evil. He doesn't mess up. But do you know the root of holiness actually simply means something like separate or distinct or unlike any other? And so rather than thinking of holiness as God is just sinless, holiness is God is other, bigger than I could ever imagine. An Old Testament scholar, E.J. Young said, the holiness of God is simply the fact that he is creator and we're creation. See, most of us, we tend to think of holiness on a spectrum, don't we? We're like right here. And we definitely know people who are like not as holy. And then there are a couple people, you know, who are really holy. They go to the 9 a.m. service. Um, And then God is on that list and he is the final end of it. He is holy, holy. And we tend to think of it as a spectrum. But that's the wrong way of thinking about it because holiness means God is other, separate, distinct. God is holy because he's creator. And you are on a different plane altogether. God is not just quantitatively bigger and better than you. He is qualitatively different than you. I say that because practically your understanding of God's holiness has massive effects in your life. Because God is not just a version of you who's greater and better in varying, increasing degrees. If he's totally other than you, then to think of God, you cannot begin with yourself. You cannot think of yourself and then think of better, more sanctified versions to try to reach God. The temptation we run into is that we often make God too much like us. We fit the creator into the mold of the creature. We begin with us and our attributes, and then we extrapolate to God. So let me give you an example. Let me give you two. The first is God's patience. We understand that God is patient. But if you understand God's patience as um, an extension of your patience, then what you're thinking is, I'm really patient with people. I'm patient with my children. I'm patient with my parents. I'm patient with my brother, with my sister. I'm patient with all these people. And then we think, okay, God is patient. So God is like that extended. Well, the problem with that is at the end of the day, don't you lose your patience toward people? Don't you end up getting fed up with people? And so somewhere in your understanding of God's patience, you actually have an underlying fear that maybe God will one day grow impatient with you. Like, Maybe God will just one day be fed up with you. He'll grow sick and tired of you committing the same sins again and again, and he just won't have it. You see, when you forget that God is holy and other, you actually become scared that maybe one day the Lord will say enough is enough. And it's actually because you misunderstand the holiness of God the fact that he's not on the same plane with you, but he's on a different plane with you, that you then misunderstand his patience. That, that's one example. Here, let me give you another. God's jealousy. I don't know what you think about God's jealousy, but the Bible holds God's jealousy as a beautiful, wonderful thing. And we all experience jealousy to some degree or another. But if you hear that God is jealous for his people, God wants the praise and worship of his people, and you hear God's jealousy and you think it's just a sanctified version of your own jealousy— then it's not long before you start suspecting that there's some part of God that's insecure, some part of God that's possessive, some part of God that's selfish. Because after all, isn't that what motivates your own jealousy? 
So when you forget God is wholly other, you'll be tempted to hear of God's jealousy and begin to resent him for it or be bitter at him. What kind of God wants all of my heart and all of my worship? How insecure or selfish or possessive is such a God? If you misunderstand his holiness, you misunderstand his jealousy. Now, I could go on and on with examples, but this simple point from Isaiah is this. God is holy, meaning he is bigger than we could ever imagine. He is completely and totally unlike us, holy in every way. And you need this in your understanding of God. Here's why. When God calls you to a life of surrender and obedience, there's a dutiful oughtness to your response simply because he is who he is. If God is God, creator of all, infinitely different than you, then you owe him. It is only right and fitting in the cosmos and all creation for you to give him your worship. Not because you want to, not because it makes sense to you, not because you see the benefits, not because it's agreeable, because he is the Lord of hosts, seated on the throne, served by the angels of heaven who eternally sing his praise. And some of us want to resist that attribute of God. And we don't like it. He's, God is, it sounds like a tyrant, self-absorbed slave master who just happens to have all the power in the world demanding things of me. But to believe in God on his terms means you can't pick and choose what you believe about God. Meaning, friends, to reject God on his terms means you can't pick and choose. And I say that because some of you fall into the opposite mistake where all you believe about God is that he is holy. And you fail to understand that the vision of Isaiah didn't end with the angels declaring holiness. It didn't end with Isaiah saying, woe is me and feeling awful about himself. But it ends with the great God of heaven, the Holy One, coming from off his throne to meet Isaiah where he was. And that's the second thing we need to see in this vision. Isaiah sees the holiness of God and his immediate response is confession. He's paralyzed. He's undone. And standing before a holy one has a way of doing that. I mean, it even happens um, in our own lives. Have you ever stood next to somebody or beside somebody who you knew was better than you? And something about their very presence around you makes you feel terrible. It's threatening. You have an existential crisis because you feel so threatened by them. I mean, every time I visit Virginia, I have this feeling because Eunice is, has two brothers and they're both 6'2 and I'm six feet. And I always feel like I'm the tallest one in the room and around them, I feel short. And it's a simple, silly example, but something about it, whenever I see pictures, I just feel really insecure. Oh, I'm shorter than them. Now, that's a silly example, but Isaiah experienced that to an infinite degree, where in which he was before the holiness of God, and he declares in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. He realizes that he has fallen short. He realizes that he has sinned, that has cut him off from God. And so he confesses his inadequacy, his insufficiency, but the confession isn't enough. What will bridge the gap between Isaiah and and the holy God is not his confession. Isaiah needs cleansing. Isaiah needs covering, which means Isaiah needs God. 
You see, what Isaiah needs is the same thing you and I need, and that's the gracious, merciful heart of God to move towards you in your great need. You see, you got to understand this about God, that he does not want nor expect you to wallow in your guilt, to feel extremely bad about yourself, to then please him that he might lead you into his presence. Nor is God interested in you working out and working off your spiritual debt so he can receive a bigger bag of good works from you. If that's not what God's interested in, it means his forgiveness isn't earned because you feel really disgusted at yourself or you've heaved enormous amounts of self-condemnation upon your head. It means God's welcome doesn't come because your good deeds finally outweigh your bad. The vision tells us God moves toward the lost and the unclean in unsolicited grace. Verse six tells us that the seraph was sent by God with a burning coal from the altar that Isaiah's guilt might be taken away, his sin atoned for, and he might be found. And what this vision shows us of the grace of God, the gospel confirms. Because Isaiah's vision of the grace of God is finally and fully realized in Jesus. In fact, although we wish at times we could have visions of God like Isaiah, because then it would be a lot easier to believe, it would be a lot easier to follow, it would be a lot easier to sacrifice. We have a better vision than Isaiah. Why? Because what Isaiah saw, the grace of God, only in symbols and shadows, we now see the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Isaiah saw the grace of God when he sent a seraph after him, but we see the grace of God when God sends his son after us. Isaiah saw the grace of God coming in a purifying burning coal, but we see the grace of God come to us in the shed blood of Christ. Isaiah saw the grace of God in the altar of sacrifice. We see the grace of God in a wooden cross wherein Christ was the final sacrifice. And the angel took the burning coal and held it with tongs, lest he wound his hands. But the son of God gave up wounded hands so that the grace of God might fall upon you and the Lord might receive you and welcome you forgiveness, and restoration. When your creatureliness was a barrier between you and the holy other God, God took on human flesh to dwell among you. When your sin stood a barrier between you and the holy God, Christ gave up his life that you might be found and forgiven. The question is, is there a room in your vision of God for this kind of grace? Some of you don't believe it. You say you believe it. You confess to believing it, but you don't practice it. You know how I know? Because sometimes we sin and our first response is to hide and run away. Sometimes we fail and our response is to double down in an effort to try harder. But the one thing the Lord requires of you is to confess. Because if you confess, he will cleanse and he will cover. On the other hand, there are some of you who all you believe about God is the grace part. And so you run to God whenever you're desperate, but you'll never run to God and ask for direction in your life. You'll pray for forgiveness, but you'll never surrender your will. You'll confess him as Savior, but never live with him as your Lord. All of us, we err and we skew in the imbalance of understanding the holiness of God and the grace of God, the bigness of God and the nearness of God. 
But the gospel gives us the corrective because it's a vision of both his bigness and his nearness, his glory and his grace, his holiness and his holding us. See, when a holy God calls you to surrender your life to him, there's a dutiful oughtness required of you. It is right that you give your life to him. But when a gracious God calls you to surrender, there's a delightful willingness from which you want to do it. It's your pleasure to give him your life because you know he's given, he's given you his. See, friends, how will you follow God when his calling on your life seems like a tougher road to go down than the path you choose for yourself? How will you remain steadfast amidst life's torrents of hard things when they come hurling at your way? How will you persevere with vibrant faith when your faith is tested and tried through the circumstances of head of you? It's only when you're sustained by the gospel vision of God. To be humbled in the fear of the Lord, but overjoyed in the friendship of the Lord. Because Isaiah 6 shows us that the worthy king welcomes you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you might impress upon us the vision of Isaiah 6 and impress it deep in our hearts. Even if that requires challenging us in how we want to think of you or what we think we already know of you. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would give us a grander vision of your bigness, a sense of your holiness greater than we could ever imagine. And we pray also that you give us a taste of your nearness and the grace with which you come after us, a grace greater than we could ever hope for. And by equipping us with the right vision of you, lead us out into the world that we might be unwavering in faith, steadfast in worship, and joyful in our obedience. Do this, O oh Lord, we ask in Jesus' name.